you know, to sit for just a moment under the weight of that story, under the weight of those words from the author and creator of life is a very heavy thing. And maybe we grasp a fraction, truly a fraction of what it means and the true weight that it bears for the God of the universe to have entered space and time and to have taken on sin himself for us. Jesus, in the accounts that we have just heard and read about and reflected upon, um, is in a moment of spiritual and emotional crying out to his Father. His humanity, his divinity, and a type of tension that until this place in history and time in the scriptures, we haven't quite seen quite like this. Jesus is crying out, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. He's asking his father to remove the cup from him. Then on the cross, he speaks and he asks God, why have you forsaken me? And then one of the things that I think that hit me so hard this week, preparing and even hearing it tonight, is Jesus' simple words, I thirst after he asked God why he has forsaken him. I mean, I couldn't help but think back and was reflected on it in the song that Jesus would be sharing and did share with the woman at the well that if only she knew who he was, she would ask him for the living water that she would never thirst from again. And how ironic that Jesus finds himself bearing our sin and for the first time, thirsty for something he had never known the absence of before. Jesus is relationally experiencing betrayal from a friend, uh, denial by a friend, the complete desertion of his entire community of friends, and the abandonment of the very same people who had shouted shouts of Hosanna days before either were silent now or had joined in the shouts of crucify him. To say Jesus was physically suffering is an understatement, we all know. The pure exhaustion that he would have been in in the moments of what he was feeling and experiencing, from the wounds, from the beatings of Roman guards to the ripping out of his beard to the crown of thorns that had been on his head for hours, to the cat of nine tails that had literally ripped his back to shreds. And then he was hung on a cross. For slow death of the asphyxiation. How do we contrast the facts of Good Friday with what the scripture we're about to read from Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Let me read that for us. This is God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we look on the surface of the events of the account, the things we've even read here tonight of Good Friday, um, it is hard to see any visible portrayal manifested in Jesus of joy. And yet, I don't think a single one of us here would doubt the fact that the empowerment of joy, the reality of a joy set before him, had to be the thing that empowered him, motivated him, drove him to endure what he had to walk through and had to endure on that cross. Joy led him on the path straight to Monday, Thursday, as we talked about that and reflected on that last night. Joy led him straight to the path of Good Friday that we remember and reflect upon tonight. Now, it's important to realize that joy is never something that God is dependent on us for. But he has in his sovereignty chosen to take delight in calling a people to himself. To take pleasure in bringing lost sheep home to his fold. The chapter preceding this one in chapter 11 tells us that there, that there is a source of faith and hope that the saints of old were clinging to. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, they were clinging to a hope. Let me read that from Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hebrews 11 goes in great detail to talk about what was endured, what was accomplished, what was trusted in, was the reality that there was something that was going to happen that the Messiah would come and bring into reality. That was the hope. And Jesus is bringing that for the joy set before him. This was his delight. This was his pleasure. Meditating on that word pleasure this week, I was trying to think, I don't hear the word pleasure used a lot specifically, except when I happen to be eating a meal at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and it came to my mind, the story about Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, who, by the way, did not come up with that expression or didn't um, originate with him at all, but he was at a Ritz-Carlton, he shares and talks about how of course, he travels a lot and spent many times in many hotels, but it stood out to him there that the service he was receiving when he said a simple thank you was responded with, my pleasure. 
And it stood out so different from his other experiences and it gripped him to think, wow, what if a restaurant chain had the same kind of mentality that it wasn't just an opportunity to, be, to serve a customer, it was their pleasure. And now you can hardly separate Chick-fil-A from the words, my pleasure, going forward. I will say I had a unique opportunity back in the fall um, to have a date night with my granddaughter at Chick-fil-A, which is a favorite thing to do. Um, she was in the stages of potty training, and my daughter had dropped her off to me saying, don't worry, I've just taken her to the bathroom, you're good to go. Those were very comforting words to me as a grandfather uh, for that time period at Chick-fil-A. And she was doing great through the meal and everything else and let her go on the playground. And, um, and there's only another kid on the playground, so everything seemed safe. I was just watching through the glass window. And the problem came when, after a few minutes, I couldn't find her. And I thought, I haven't seen her in a while. Which, I knew she was in the playground because I'd seen her go in and I was standing by the door and she had not come out. Um, but then slowly she emerged from one of the slides. Um, and she was not alone. Um, she had a trail behind her. Um, and it was not the easy kind. It was the challenging kind. <laughs> and the, the other poor kid in the playground just was staring and looking at me like, you're going to do something, right? <laughs> um, and I did. I whisked her out to the men's room. Um, and after a long time, reemerged, um, ready to get in the car, but realizing there was a worker in the playground, hard at work, and I thought, I gotta help this guy out. So I walked in there and said, hey, uh, I'm very sorry. Um, that was my responsibility, I, let, let me help. And he said, no, 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 I got it. You go ahead. Uh, I said, well, thank you very much. And he said, my pleasure. <laughs> and I thought, you are good. You are good. <laughs> Good man. Um, but I knew in that moment there had to be an overseeding value, core value, um, because the face, the expression on the face lined up with it, that there was a deeper reality than what he was in at the moment, so to speak. Um, I think it is similar maybe to what a uh, pregnant mother goes through when she has nine months but for the joy set before him, she endures nine months of hardship, of difficulty and challenges and a day of labor and delivery. But for the moment, for the joy before her that she will hold a newborn baby in her arms. You see, it is difficult, it is challenging to live in a broken world, to see the difficulties and the challenges and the painful path that must be taken and to still find delight in it. And yet Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame on a level that none of us can ever fully understand, nor will we, I believe. Joy led Jesus to leave heaven, to put on human skin, to walk from a stable 33 years later all the way to a cross. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, he writes and says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, it's important for us to realize God does not need us to generate his joy. Yet Jesus' work of salvation to adopt us as sons and daughters is to bring us into his joy. 
and into his glory that he perfectly has, but he wants us to be a part of it. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 that very thing. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Hallelujah. beautiful place that Jesus illustrates this is in his parables in Luke chapter 15. You remember that, right? A lost sheep, a lost coin, a couple lost sons. In the first part of that section, Jesus talks about the lost sheep being found. And he says this, he says, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And with the lost coin that is found, there's another invitation. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is a joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then over the lost younger son who has returned home there's the invitation to enter into the feast that the father says this. He says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. He's inviting us to enter into his joy for the joy set before him required him to endure the cross. But it was his pleasure. So be reminded tonight, be reminded especially tonight of the bitterness of the betrayal and the desertion of everyone that he knew that night. Be reminded tonight, and especially tonight, of the anguish of the crucifixion and his sufferings. Be reminded tonight, and especially tonight, the hell of the atonement as he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might know the righteousness of God in Christ. But remember, it was for the joy set before him. It was for you. It was for me to be restored in right relationship with God the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ, to adopt us beloved sons and daughters and to make us heirs to the throne in his kingdom. I do want to remind you from that same set of parables, the parable of the sons, there was one son, right? that chose not to come in to the celebration. Tim Keller writes about it in his book, Prodigal God. He says, another sign of those with an elder brother spirit is joyless, fear-based compliance. The older son boasts of his obedience to his father, but lets his underlying motivation and attitude slip out when he says, all these years, I've been slaving for you. A slave works out of fear, fear of consequences imposed by force. This gets to the root of what drives an elder brother. Ultimately, elder brothers live good lives out of fear, not out of joy and out of love. So friends, we have an opportunity tonight. And I want to encourage you as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, as we have an opportunity uh, to come do that, to take time to prepare your heart, to take time to draw near to him, claiming his promise that he'll draw near to you. You know, maybe you're here tonight because somebody drug you here, um, somebody invited you to come, 
Somebody waved a free dinner before or after, um, maybe to be here. Maybe you've been in church all your life. And yet deep down, you know, you have not come to a place of surrender where you have turned your life over to him. And come to him in surrender and repentance. If that's the case for you tonight, let me encourage you not to, not to partake of the elements themselves here tonight. First Corinthians warns that it would be better for us to, to not partake than to drink and eat judgment. But let me encourage you to come and receive Christ himself instead. Me and other pastors that will be serving the table here in the elements here tonight, we'd love to talk to you and share what that means and what it looks like after the service. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and I hope that most of you are um, here tonight. But let me encourage you here to come and to be reminded of what it would look like and what it means to confess your younger son tendencies here tonight. As you come to this table to remind yourself of your own willingness and desire repetitively to want to walk away from the Father and do it your own way. Find your own way. Whether it's outward rebellion or small ways of rebellion directly in defiance or indirectly in defiance. Allow his spirit to convict you, to show you, confess that and turn from that here tonight. And let me encourage each of us too to confess your older son tendencies like, my, like me. The sin of joylessness. I never really thought about that being a sin until this week. Bring that sin to him knowing that he has paid for it in full as you trust Christ. The sin of joylessness. Um, being unmotivated by love, being motivated by self-righteousness, all kinds of different ways that we can come. So let me encourage you as we continue to worship him and come to his table here that this is a table of the Lord Jesus Christ that he invites you to come. And he is delighted to have you here. Let's take a moment and read that communion prayer.